Father, I pray that you will clear our heads of every thought but that of you. And Jesus, you would hold every thought captive by your Spirit now. I pray, Father, for you to unclog our ears that we might clearly hear what you're speaking to us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would make application of all these things to each of our lives. Father, meet your children where they are, each one of us. It's a way that you can only do. And I marvel at this, Father. I marvel that at the same teaching and, and hearing of your word, how you can speak to so many different hearts in so many personal ways. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to do that right now. As we continue on, Lord, in your word, in the book of Proverbs, we pray for your wisdom. As we talked about Sunday, Lord, we take Jesus, who is wisdom. Not a personification, but the person of wisdom himself. Jesus, you make us wise. You give us understanding. And you show us prudence and knowledge. You're the one who leads us along the righteous path. Who always points the way forward and gently calls to us. Compassionately draws us out of our foolishness into your wisdom. It's why we're here, Lord. It's what we seek. So, Father, I just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit through the pages of of your word that you would speak to our hearts tonight. Draw us close to you, Lord. Jesus' name. Well, tonight we're going to conclude the introduction. (laughs) Chapters 8 and 9 in the book of Proverbs concludes the introduction to the book. We're a third of the way into the book and we're still in the introduction. Such are the words of Solomon. In these first nine chapters, what he does is he lays a broad foundation. Inspired by the Spirit, He provides definitions and explanations and exhortations to get wisdom and get understanding. And beginning next week in chapter 10, we're going to take in the actual Proverbs one by one by one, line by line. We're going to sift through these nuggets of wisdom, forming the mountain of wisdom that is found in this book. But here we end the introduction tonight with... Again, with an invitation. An invitation to life. Now, the introductory introductory section culminates with two personifications. We've talked quite a bit about these. The strange woman in chapters 6 and 7, that luring and adulterous spirit. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Sunday I talked about this a little bit more, the adulterous spirit, in contrast to wisdom personified as a woman. And why Solomon did that. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I think it's a critical teaching for understanding the book of Proverbs, especially how Solomon is introducing it. But fascinating, Monday morning I got up, and this idea of the adulterous spirit and the adulterating spirit across ages that's been around in the world was still fresh on my mind when I opened up the news. And uh, I read this. From Monday, April 18th, 2011, the United Nations diplomats on Wednesday, that's today, will set aside pressing issues of international security to devote an entire day debating the rights of Mother Earth. A block of mostly socialist governments led by Bolivia have put the issue on the General Assembly agenda to discuss the creation of a UN treaty, you're not going to believe this, a UN treaty that would grant the same rights found in the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights to Mother Nature. 
treaty supporters want the establishment of legal systems to maintain balance between human rights and what they perceive to be the inalienable rights of other members of the earth community, plants, animals, and terrain. Dirt. In January, Bolivia became the world's first nation to grant the natural environment equal rights to humans. Bolivia's law of Mother Earth is heavily influenced, listen, heavily influenced by the spiritual, indigenous, Andean world outlook that revolves around the Earth deity, Pacamama. I kid you not, Pacamama. Roughly translated, Pacamama is to the Bolivian's Mother Earth. And so, here we go. Spiritual adultery. Let's grant dumb plants the same inalienable rights as human beings. Step on a plant, go to prison. I don't know, is that what they're talking about? Squish a bug? Be held liable in a court of law? It sounds absolutely ridiculous, and yet, here we are. In the United Nations. Now you might say, well... We're the American nation, not the United Nations. (laughs) Have you been paying attention to the way things are going? This is the world we live in. And Paul called it to a T. Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's at the root of all of the, the sin that we see on planet Earth, of all the abominations and things that would be detestable or, or abominable or gross or disgusting. The root of it is trading in the truth of God for the lie of Mother Earth. Spiritual adultery. I read that and I just gasped. And I just said, Lord, how long are you going to put up with this spiritually adulterous generation? Now thank God that wisdom is still calling out. For all the loud voices of those who had traded in, wisdom is still calling out. The other personification, wisdom as a woman, is what we come across in chapters 8 and 9. The gentle, compassionate, virtuous voice. Chapter 8, verse 1, Does not wisdom call, and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the heights, beside the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, at the opening to the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence. O fools, understand wisdom. Listen. For I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. They are all straightforward to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction, and not silver, And knowledge rather than choicest gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. And you're making the right choice. Right now, people are making money. Did you know that? And people are drawing in silver, gold, and precious stones. Right now, hard at work, working late, putting in the long hours to put away the 401ks, and here you sit. You are wasting so much time that you could be spending on making money. But you've chosen the better part. You've chosen something that can't be taken from you. You've chosen a rich, a wealth, a posterity, a prosperity so much greater than anything that can be earned in a day's work, a month's work, a lifetime of work. Now, as you may recall from Sunday, Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman. And there are plenty of qualities throughout here which are typically seen in what we might call the fairer sex, the gentleness of wisdom and the compassion of wisdom and the virtue of wisdom. And we went through several of these on Sunday morning. But all of these, in truth, are qualities of the Godhead. They are very actual and true qualities of God the Father. 
and Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so while wisdom here is going to be personified, or is personified as a woman, we've got to remember that wisdom was realized, is realized as a man in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is not the personification, but the person of wisdom. And as we continue on now in chapter 8, you're going to see this unfold before your eyes. Verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth, I hate. Now, we have a new definition here of what the fear of the Lord does. We talked when we opened up the book about the fear of the Lord. And now we're back to it. Solomon will use this phrase 14 times in the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The start point. You know, it's right at the beginning of the race. That's where you take off. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, if you look one chapter over, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But here we're told in chapter 8, that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, two quick things on this. The fear of the Lord does at least two things to the human heart. At least two. Number one, it develops devotion to the Lord. The fear of the Lord develops devotion to Him. The more I hold Him in awe, the more faithful to Him I become. The more I hold Him in esteem, the greater my adoration for Him. If you want to increase your love for Jesus, then fear Him more. The more you lift Him up, the more beautiful He is in your eyes. Psalm 97 verse 10 says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of His godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. In heartfelt awe and adoration, I begin to hate what He hates. And the things he despises, I despise. Why? Because he does. I might not even know why he despises those things, but I'm going to despise them if he does, because the reality is, I love him so much, I begin to hate the things that grieve his heart. I find myself even angry at those things that I know upset the Lord, sadden him. And there are plenty of things out there in our world today. The fear of the Lord develops devotion to Him. But secondly, the fear of the Lord works something else in me as well. It develops disgust with sin. Disgust with sin. Sin gets uglier and uglier and uglier until it really begins to just gross me out. I think about this. Movies that I would have watched as a college student that I would never watch today. Why? Because they're just disgusting. Because they're sickening to me. Sin gets uglier and uglier until the damage and destruction caused by sin itself just becomes sickening to us. We don't even want to be around it. I don't hate the person, but I come to despise the sin that eats away at their life or the sin that eats away at my life. I was thinking about this in the Philippines we taught through 2 Timothy. And we're going to do that on June 10th and 11th. We're going to do a mini retreat right here at the barn and go through 2 Timothy if you're interested. I'll get you more information about that as we get closer. But in 2 Timothy, Paul calls out several people. Paul was very bold, had no problem calling names of those who are heretical. And he calls out a couple of guys named Hymenaeus and Philetus. Listen to what he says about them. These are two guys who clearly don't fear the Lord. And Paul says the following. 2 Timothy 2.17 Their talk will spread like gangrene. See, that's being disgusted by gossip. That's being disgusted by false teaching and heresy. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Have you ever seen pictures of gangrene? If you're curious, go home and Google that. Yeah, and don't be eating a snack when you do so. Gangrene is disgusting and it's sickening. And Paul is disgusted by the behavior of these two guys. Why? Because they're sinning. And sin disgusts Paul. It's sickening to him. The fear of the Lord develops devotion to the Lord. It develops disgust with sin. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, By loving kindness and truth, equity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. The more I fear God, the more I'm going to run 
from sin and wickedness and evil. And he says, continuing in verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Anything that puffs itself up over the Lord. Anything that claims grandeur or greatness. I can't watch the Academy Awards for this reason. Anything that just puffs up. You know? Because that's that's where Satan was. That's what happened with him. That was the entire reason for his downfall. Ezekiel 28, verse 17, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Isaiah 14, verse 12, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Here's a proverb for you. Wisdom will always be humble. Foolishness will always be humbled. Wisdom will always be humble. But foolishness will always be humbled. Verse 14. Counsel is mine. And sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles. All who judge rightly. And you can apply that all the way down to our families. Those who lead well in their families are wise. Those who lead well in the workplace, even among the nations, these are those who seek the counsel and wait for the words of wisdom. They judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Now wait a minute. Isn't this just a personification here? This is sounding awfully personal. If it's just a personification, how can it love? I love those who love me, the voice says. The personification here is beginning to give way to a person. In these words, in this verse, gang, I believe, and I think I can back it up, that we're beginning to hear Jesus talking and not just some vague personification of wisdom as a woman. This is actually Jesus speaking. How do you get that? Well, here's a clue. When wisdom says, I love those who love me. I love. The Hebrew verb love, achab, is written in the masculine form. Not in the feminine form. I love those. It's a masculine, I love. I believe coming from Jesus, the voice of Jesus, the person of wisdom, is beginning to come through here. And he becomes more and more obvious as we read. And not only does he love those who love him, but he he promises that those who diligently seek him will find him. Those who diligently seek me will find me. Listen, what does Jesus says? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be open. Jesus said that in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. When did you start seeking him? At what point in your life did you become a seeker? Did you start really going after Jesus? Think back. Some of you, maybe it was recent. For others, it was many, many years ago. M.R. DeHaan did a landmark study a long time ago trying to determine at what ages people come to the Lord. This is what he came up with. You probably heard the majority of, of people, of kids, really choose Jesus before the age of 18. The vast majority, it's something like 80%, maybe even higher, of those who give their lives to Jesus will do so before they turn 18. And the statistics start to go downhill from there. By the age of 35, the odds of a person being born again are 1 in 50,000. By the age of 45, the probability of being born again falls to 1 in 300,000. And by the age of 75, my dad's age, the odds are overwhelming. Only 1 in 700,000 people will give their life to the Lord by the time they hit 75. You see how critical our children's ministry is? 
You see how much it matters that we teach our children to know Jesus? Now, big numbers don't bother God at all. In fact, He doesn't work with statistics. He moves in the supernatural. (laughs) So a 75-year-old is no problem for the Lord. The problem is in the heart because the older we get, the harder our hearts get, physically and spiritually. It's just a reality. The older we get, the more difficult our hearts find their function. The more easily they get clogged up, the more they thicken and harden. And it's the same thing spiritually. But the good news is whether you got saved early on or after 35 or after 45 or even after 75, salvation is still a miracle. It's a miracle for a 10-year-old as much as it's a miracle for a 75-year-old. So don't give up when it comes to those in your life who you know don't know Jesus but are of an advanced age. It doesn't matter when we came to love Him. What matters is that we came to love Him. And what matters is how much you love Him now. That we keep loving Him, keep seeking Him. He uses the word diligently. Those who diligently seek Me will find Me. You know, one of the most famous things that Joshua said in his closing sermon to the people of Israel was, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Something else he said that we don't often hear repeated, but it's absolutely marvelous. Joshua 23, verse 11, he says, Take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Be diligent about your love. Well, how am I diligent about my love? You spend time with Him diligently. You focus your heart on Him diligently. You wake to Him in the morning diligently. You go to bed at night with Him diligently. You show up at Bible study diligently. You spend time in the Word diligently. Time with other believers diligently. Worshiping God diligently. That your love might increase more and more. Now, I'll just missed a page here. Verse 18. Let's go on. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than choicest silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. Wealth. Does that mean that only smart people get rich? That the wise fill their treasuries with cash and gold and silver and jewels. We already addressed this a bit. Let me address it a little bit more. Does it also mean that all those who are in poverty are foolish? I already shared with you on Sunday a family that we met who live in the barrio, in the Philippines, in Cebu. They are an impoverished family by all counts, but they love the Lord. The Father holds Bible studies out of His shack weekly. They are at every feeding program, not for the food, but for the service to the children. They are actively involved in ministry, and yet they would, by our standards, be absolutely impoverished. And yet, does that mean they're foolish? Not in the least. I remind you, the person of wisdom himself, Jesus, was a homeless man. Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I love that. The king of the universe, when he came to live among us and walk on earth, didn't even have a P.O. box. Didn't have a zip code. He owned nothing. He had to be cared for in his ministry by a group of women who took care of finances. That was Jesus. Homeless and happy. The person of wisdom. The thing not to miss is the kind of wealth that's literally being described here. It has nothing to do with Standard & Poor's rating on sound investments. It's better than pure gold. It's better than choice silver. Righteousness, justice, honor, and wisdom. These things will fill your treasury if you walk with Jesus. No guarantee about money, but money's going to burn anyway. Now listen closely as the person completely overtakes the personification. We see Jesus. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way. Before His works of old, from everlasting, I was established. The word established there is consecrated. I was consecrated. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. And when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, 
Before the hills I was brought forth, while he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the fine dust of the world. The personification here is no longer speaking. The person is. Jesus. John tells us, John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, note this. Some translations take verses 24 and 25, and the phrase, the word there, brought forth, is translated born. You may even see it in the liner notes if you're looking at an NASB. It says that the word there can be born. And the reason they do that, I, I understand, it's not very correct. But the reason that they say, well, the word could be born, uh, when there were no depths, I was born, or before the hills were brought forth, I was born. The reason they do that is this, this word for, for born or brought forth is used in other passages to describe something that's been produced. Example, Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, the earth brought forth her vegetation. Plants yielding seed after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind and God saw that it was good. The Hebrew word brought forth, used in verse 24 and 25, and you might note this in your Bible margins. The word is yakal. Y-A-C-H-A-L. Yakal, if you're speaking it in Hebrew. And yakal literally means, I love this, it means hoped for. It means expected. Expected. Listen to it in that way. When there were no depths, I was expected. When there were no hills, I was hoped for. The hope of mankind, before mankind was born, the hope of mankind was, is Jesus. He was hoped for, He was expected. And the same thing applies today. We hope for Him and we expect Him, don't we? It's not that he was brought forth. It's not that that Jesus was born. Jesus who had always been in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it's not that somehow Jesus was created right before the earth was. No, Jesus had always been. But when the earth was created, an expectation was set up that He would come, that He would be the redemption of creation. He, Romans chapter 8 talks about that, that all creation, even today, groans in expectation, hoping for the revelation of the children of God, the sons of of God, through the coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 27 going on says, When He established the heavens, I was there. When He inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when He set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundation of the earth, watch this, then I was beside Him as a master what? Workman. Work man. What? I thought this was a person. I thought wisdom was a woman. I thought the woman wisdom was talking here. No. We've just traded over. We are now hearing Jesus, the person of wisdom himself. I was beside him as a master workman. Colossians 1.16 tells us by Him all things were created both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. And I love this passage. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 tells us of the Son, of the Son, He says, quote, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. Of the Son, He says... You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And of the Son, He says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Of the Son, He says all this. Because the Son was there at creation. Wisdom incarnate, not Mother Nature, not Pacamama. <laughs> But Jesus Christ, the master workman. And can you even imagine the scene? I've told you before, I'm going to pop that DVD in when we get to heaven. The DVD of creation. I know God's got to have a whole library. Well, it'll be Blu-ray. Unless they come up with something else. It's probably better. We're going to sit down and I I would love to see, to revisit these things. Creation. 
God creating. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three present. God the Father was there. Spirit was there moving over the waters. Son was there. The Word was with God and was God. So they're all there and they're creating. And look at what verse 30 goes on to say. I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him, rejoicing in the world, His earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. It was a delightful experience. The Godhead there, all three expressions of Father, Son, and Spirit present at creation, rejoicing together, delighting, even as the angels were told in other places, sang for joy. The creation of the natural world, gang, was the most supernatural event ever to occur. And it was super joyful. I love this. Jesus says, My delight is in the sons of men. And that's wonderful. In fact, it's amazing because I can't always concur. My delight is in the sons of men. I look at the United Nations and I think, how stupid are the sons of men? Or or I, I look at the sin of the world around me or the things people sometimes do and I just shake my head as if I don't do those same stupid things. I look at the masses... And I confess to you, there are times where my first instinct is not delight. Walking down the streets of Seattle and going, man, I just want to get back to the hotel, man. Jesus delights in the sons of men. This is, this is a truth that is marvelous to me. Incredible. I delight in the sons of men. He really does. Mark, or Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And it must have just wore him out. But that's not what we're told. We're told seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He looked out of the masses and just went, oh. I got to stay just a little longer. Just a few more healings. Just a little more prayer. Just a few more little ones I can put my hands on. A little more teaching. Because he looked out and his delight was in the sons of men. John 13 verse 1 says, Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. (laughs) Incredible. He loved them right through the betrayal. He loved them right through the beatings. He loved them right up onto the cross and there on the cross continued to love them to the very end till Him saying, it is finished. And He loved them in His death. Psalm 16 verse 3, possibly the words of Jesus in Gethsemane. We looked at this a few months back. It says, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. And you know what's great about this? Not only does Jesus delight in the sons of men, but He delights in you as one of them. And He delights in you right now. This Jesus who delights in the sons of men, Jesus' wisdom incarnate, our hope and expectancy from before the beginning of the world, He delights in us and He is always with us. And that's why we're wise. That's where wisdom comes from. That's where intelligence comes from. That's where breakthroughs in science come from. That's where the great ideas of the Western world come from. That's where the amazing inventions of the Easter world originated. Jesus, who is wisdom. And James says to you, to me, James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you want wisdom, ask for it, because God's going to give it. And He'll give it to you in Jesus. It's not a course of study. It's not a a series of proverbs that are memorized. It's not lectures that we get into our head. It's Him. Remember Sunday, take Jesus. Because Jesus is wisdom. He doesn't give wisdom, He is wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And that could describe all of us. No offense, but really... How wise were we? How noble were we, truly, when we came to Jesus? 
How mighty were we? In fact, it's probably the least mighty moment of my life when I gave my life to Jesus because it was the greatest moment of need. Paul says, yeah, that's the way it was when you came to Him. But by His doing, verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I'm not wise. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. I'm not wise and you are not wise. Amen. But He is wisdom. And all wisdom is in Him and He delights in you and He is with you. Hallelujah, that's just great news. Verse 32. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me. For blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. And those who hate me All those who hate me love death. Still Jesus talking. Still Jesus inviting. Still Jesus, our wisdom. Three things to note here at the tail end of chapter 8. Verse 34. It says, Blessed is the man who listens to me. So listen to him. Listen to him. Note those words. Listen to him. It doesn't say read him. And I'm not saying don't read the word. But I'm saying in addition to all of our Bible studies we've talked about many times, listen. Open your ears to the voice of Jesus. Get used to His voice. How do I know if it's Him? Well, you test it against the Word. Because the more you're in the the Word, the more you're in tune with the voice of Jesus, the more when He speaks you're going to go, oh, that's Jesus. I know that's the Lord. Because it sounds like Him. Become accustomed to Him. Listen to Him. At the Transfiguration, Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9, Jesus stands up there, and you remember Peter wanted to put up those tabernacles for for Jesus and for Moses and for Elijah, and the voice comes out of the clouds. This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Blessed is the man who listens to Me. Continuing on in verse 34, it says, Watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorpost. What does that mean? Not only listen to Him, but love His appearing. Love His appearing. Why would you be waiting at the gates? Watching at the gates, waiting at the doorposts. Because you can't wait to see Him. You're waiting for Him. You're loving His appearing. You can't wait until He comes through those gates. Until He appears. I remember when Cheryl and I were first dating, and we were very young at the time, boy, 18, 19 years old, way back when. And I remember one morning we were working in the summertime during college, and and she was still living at home with her folks, and I was living with my folks, and we were both working separate jobs, and so I wasn't seeing her until 5.30 or 6 in the evening, the soonest that I got to see her during the day. And I'll never forget that one morning where I heard a knock on the door, 6 in the morning, and I opened the door, and there she was. Just had to see you before I went to work. Yeah. Those were the days. <laughs> anyway. Waiting. Loving my... Just waiting for me to show up at the door. Love His appearing. We talk about this in 2 Timothy quite a bit because that's where the verse comes from. 2 Timothy 4.8 In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved His appearing. Listen to His voice and love His appearing. Long for His appearing. Look forward to it. Remind yourself every now and then He's coming. He's coming. And I can't wait to see Him. And I am waiting at the gate to see Him. And finally, verse 35, For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Live for Him. Very simple. Listen to Him. Love His appearing. Live for Him. These are keys to wisdom. These are keys to understanding and to knowledge, to growth in the Lord. Listen to Him. Love His appearing. Live for Him. And Paul says in Colossians 3.4, When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. John says in 1 John 5.11, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. 
Which is why he says, He who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. The Son is life. The Son gives life. The Son is life in and of Himself, which is why back in verse 24 and 25, we're told, when there were no depths, and before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was hoped for. I was hoped for. Because in the Son is life, and that life is the light of men. Now in chapter 9, Solomon returns momentarily to this feminine personification but now as a hostess who's welcoming friends to a grand dinner party first we see the invitation of wisdom and he closes the introduction as I said when we began with this invitation the invitation of wisdom wisdom has built her house she has hewn out her seven pillars she has prepared her food she has also mixed her wine She has also set her table. She sent out her maidens, she calls, from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, can you imagine the people turning in? (laughs) To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. All things are ready for my feast. She says, wisdom calls out. Wisdom's house is built with seven pillars indicating completeness. And the food is prepared. I like this. It's not prepared her food. It's literally she has slaughtered her slaughter, (laughs) which means the steaks are sizzling on the barbecue. Ready to get some, some dinner, some feasting going on. The wine is mixed and set out to breathe. She sends out her maidens to invite the foolish and the naive to come to the Feast of Wisdom. It's a picture of the readiness and the invitation of wisdom to her banquet. Wisdom says it. Come and dine with me. The house is ready. The table is set. The wine is poured. And the invitation has gone out. But there's more to this metaphor, more to this picture than meets the eye. And you know, it starts with this this idea of the seven pillars... She has hewn out her seven pillars. Now granted, you can superficially take that as completeness. It makes sense. It's often the picture of completeness, that number seven. But the Hebrew mind might well see something else in this description of seven pillars, a parallel to the seven branches of the lampstand. Seven branches of the lampstand. You know the lampstand that stood in the holy place there in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And the lampstand had seven branches. It had that one primary shaft right up the middle. And on top of that, that, that lamp that held the oil and, and the light, the candle would burn there on the top of the oil lamp. And then there were six branches, three on either side, one, two, and three going out, each one of those holding a lamp on top, filled with oil, and those lamps would burn so that you had the total of seven on the golden lampstand. What's the significance of this? I suggest to you that the seven pillars talked about by Solomon, paralleling the the seven branches of the lampstand, illustrate the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. That we're looking at the Holy Spirit here, or at least an allusion to the Holy Spirit. Well, where do you get that? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Which says, speaking of Jesus, by the way, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge. Hear all those things. We're talking about wisdom, right? Listen to those words. These are Solomonic words, if if you will. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. These things describing the gifts or the manifest ministries of the Holy Spirit. You might say, Rick, you're holding up six fingers. I know. The seventh is the Spirit Himself. Like that main shaft of the lampstand being the Holy Spirit. And then you've got wisdom and knowledge and counsel and strength and understanding and the fear of the Lord. You have seven altogether. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Which is why I believe John is referring to the Holy Spirit in the opening pages of Revelation when he writes in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, To the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. 
And later he'll say, and from Jesus Christ, that's the Son, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. But he also says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Well, people read that and go, what? The seven spirits before his throne? I have enough trouble with the Trinity, and now you're telling me there are seven spirits of God? Yeah, the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. Seven attributes of one spirit as described in Isaiah 11, verse 2. And the Hebrew student would know that as John is writing. So so get this. The Spirit is at the feast. It's an invitation to a feast, but the Spirit is there. And something else precedes the feasting. She has prepared her food, verse 2 tells us. She has slaughtered her slaughter. So the Holy Spirit is there and a slaughter has taken place. A sacrifice has been made that people might come and feast in joy. And the wine is poured. The wine is mixed. It's prepared. Symbolic of blood. What came out of Jesus when the sword went in was a mixture of blood and water. So the wine is mixed. And the table is set. Bringing to mind, at least to me, the Lord's table, communion, as we come together to remember Him and proclaim His death until when? Until He comes. Until He comes. No wonder Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with Me. No wonder there are so many teachings of Jesus where He says, Hey, you're going to come and we're going to prepare a great feast and sit down. I'm going to serve you. You're going to sit at My Father's table. No wonder David says He prepares a table for Me in the presence of My enemies. Because... This feast is an invitation of God to come by wisdom through Jesus Christ to the place of salvation. Wisdom has built her house. Could this be an allusion to the church? Built together, unity, formed together, brick by brick as we function together. Jesus as the foundation, the Spirit as the seven pillars, the slaughter, the cross, His wine, the blood, the table is set. And then and then what happens? Wisdom then sends out maidens with the invitation. Look around, maidens. It's you. Some of you guys are going, I'm not sure I really like being called a maiden. Well, you're also called the bride of Christ, so get used to it. The maidens sent out, and the invitation is, come to the feast. Come feast. Revelation 19.7 tells us, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Revelation 22.17 The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. So, maidens, who have you invited this week? we got to get down to brass tacks here, gang. Who have you invited? Who have you talked to about Jesus this week? I'm not saying that to make anyone feel guilty, but to stop us in the midst of our hectic pace and say, wait a minute, did I invite someone to know Jesus? I'm not saying, did you invite someone to the bridge? It's fine if you want to do that. But did you invite someone to the feast this week? Have you talked to anybody? about Jesus this week. I'm going to ask you that question next week. Who have we invited? Going on in verse 7 now, so we have the invitation that goes out. The invitation to the feast, the invitation of wisdom. And in verse 7, he continues, he says, He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. You see, there's wisdom because wisdom accepts teaching and training and rebuke and reproval. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you alone will bear it. Now what's this doing here? This little section is kind of interesting. This grand invitation goes out to forsake folly and live and 
come eat the food and drink the wine of wisdom. And suddenly, oh, and by the way, he who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults. What's going on? Well, following the invitation, we have a little section where if you could sum it all up, I would do it in the words of Jesus, Matthew 7, 6, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And that's some tough teaching. In fact, it's a little confusing. What are you saying, Lord? And aren't we supposed to love everybody? And aren't we supposed to take the gospel to the whole world and speak your name to everybody? Listen closely to this. It's important teaching. When the With the invitation comes a requirement. With the invitation comes a condition. This is a conditional invitation to a degree. I know God's love and grace is unconditional, but the invitation has one condition to it. And here we see in these few verses, these six verses, 7 through 12, we see the condition of the uninvited. The condition of the uninvited. The invitation of Jesus always goes out to those who are receptive and hungry and willing. To those who will take what it offers. But the invitation is not for those who would scorn it, mock it, scoff at it, or reject it. And that's what Jesus means when He says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give to dogs that which is holy. What He's talking about is giving even the truth of the Gospel, if you're going to someone and you know they're going to mock you for it, Jesus says, don't give it. You don't offer the invitation to someone who's going to slap you in the face for it. Make fun of you for giving it. Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus even said, Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Jesus. <laughs> this is hard. I, I thought I was supposed to take the gospel to everyone. Well, you are, but listen, you look for open doors. And you look for open windows, open hearts. You look for hungry people. You offer the gospel to those who seem to be receptive. You wait for those windows of opportunity in any relationships. And by the way, they always come. Even with a scoffer and a mocker, there comes a time where the windows open. Where they may have made fun of the Lord all their life, but they get hit with a deep tragedy. And right then the windows open. You have a narrow opportunity to speak Jesus into their life. And you do it. But Jesus would say, don't waste your time throwing the word out to people who are not going to receive it. Because you know what the single condition is? Faith. To receive wisdom's invitation, you need faith. The person to receive it has to come. And it doesn't have to be a lot of faith. It can be that much. Just enough faith to know, I need Him. I need who you are, Jesus. I need what you have to offer. That much faith. And if a person is in that place, man, you offer them the gospel, and that's where it becomes received. I want to read something, and it's just because it fascinates me. Over in, in 2 John chapter 7, you can just listen, or if you want to turn there, I'm going to read it quickly. 2 John chapter 7. John gives this advice. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then he says, Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now that's critical. John just drew a line in the sand and a very thick and deep line. He says, anyone who proclaims godliness or divinity outside of Christ is not of God. It is in Christ that you know someone truly is of God. Anyone else, any other belief system, any other faith, any other religion, if it doesn't proclaim Jesus Christ as God and Lord, it is not of God. And then he says this, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. I'm just going to let you chew on that. John says, don't even welcome someone who is coming at you with heresy. 
Don't invite someone who is bringing you anything other than the truth of Jesus Christ. And so here at the end of chapter 9, following the invitation of wisdom, we have the condition of the uninvited, and that is no faith. It's mocking, it's scoffing, it's rejection and it's rebellion. And Jesus says, if you know someone like that, and you've tried to give them the gospel, and all they do is mock it, don't cast the pearls before swine. Don't offer to dogs that which is holy. And here at the conclusion of the introduction of the Proverbs, guess who shows up? She's back. The adulterous woman, verse 13. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits in the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't we just hear that? The spirit of adultery is saying the exact same thing as wisdom is saying. Same words to a T. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. She imitates the voice of wisdom. She counterfeits the voice of wisdom. She says the same thing, but then she tweaks it, which we'll see just a second. But note this first. Who is she trying to deceive? Verse 15, those who pass by who are making their paths straight. See, unlike wisdom who calls out to the naive, we have the spirit of adultery who is calling out to those who are actually seeking wisdom. To those who are actually trying to make their path straight. To those who hunger for righteousness. To those who want faith. To those who would like to believe in Jesus. The spiritual adulteress is calling out to them. Saying, come this way. Come with me. And then she adds something to her imitation invitation. She says, verse 17, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is Pleasant. She's right, you know. She's right. Stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret, and the indication is stolen bread or bread that you shouldn't have. Somehow you got a hold of it, but it's eaten in secret and it's pleasant. She adds to her invitation what I call the injection of the illicit. The injection of the illicit from the syringe of secrecy. What do you mean, Rick? One of the greatest lures of sin, almost greater than sin and temptation itself, is secrecy. That's how Satan works. Have you? I mean, you guys, you know this. There is a thrill with doing something that you might get caught for, but you hope not. It's a rush. There's a thrill in getting involved with something. A turn on of no one watching, so I'm going to do this in secret. There's the excitement of getting away with it. It's the injection of the illicit into sin. And you know the truth is you never do get away with it. Be sure your sin will find you out. James 1.14 says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And Romans 2.16 says, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. But here's the reality of all the secrecy that we think is so tantalizing when it comes to sin. Verse 18, there is another secret. He does not know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the depths of Sheol. That's the real secret. Enticed by the illicitness, by thinking we'll get away with it. Oh, it's a secret. But once you get into it, the secret that you discover, the thing that you didn't know, is death is there. And death is attached to it. And death is the end of it. There is a way, Proverbs 14.12, which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. James chapter 1, verse 14 tells us when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And that's spiritual death, but gang, it is also physical death. Sin brings death. I could give you example after example of how sin results in death. 
I'm not going to tonight. I'm just going to say the adulteress keeps calling. Praise God, wisdom is calling too. Even though as Paul wrote in Romans 1, that the Lord has given His people over, or given people over to the lust of their hearts, there is still the invitation to life. And so Solomon closes out chapter 9 with that invitation. You have wisdom calling, and the adulteress is calling, and it takes faith to hear the voice of wisdom. Lord Jesus, give us faith tonight. Give us faith tonight. We recognize Your invitation to life. That Jesus, You are the life. And that life is the light of men. And Lord, I just pray that You will prepare our hearts now for Sunday and for next week. And for however much time You have for us, Lord. But prepare us to receive the Proverbs each in its season in its own time. As we get into chapter 10 later on. But more than that, Lord, speak wisdom to our hearts. Speak Jesus into our lives. As we learn to embrace You evermore. In Jesus' name, Amen.